Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, today, we've got a really unique guest, and I'm excited to have Dr. Helena Bosky on today. Um, she doesn't think of herself as a thought leader, but I can tell you she certainly is. She's somebody that, that I admire. Just recently got introduced to her in the work that she's doing. Uh, Helena has really kind of paralleled my life and and, and folks like Dan Doherty and our team's lives in a lot of ways where she started off as a business practitioner and then she turned into a practical neuroscientist and neuropsychologist who really wanted to take the aspects of what she was curious about with the brain and why people behave the way they behaved and turn it into what we like to call applied neuroscience so that she can actually help you, the listener, understand how your brain is wired what you need to know about that, and then how that either inhibits you from being successful or, more importantly, how to leverage that to be even more successful in every aspect of your life, personally and professionally. She's worked with companies, multinational companies all around the world. She's now doing a lot, obviously, a lot less public speaking because of the situation we're in, but now a lot of virtual speaking. Uh, So if you're listening out there, she is definitely somebody you're going to want to think of bringing into your business as a thought leader in this space. So, Helena, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Oh, and I forgot to mention that automatically I sound dumber because of your cool accent. Because whenever you've got that cool accent, you always sound smarter. In this case, you actually are smarter, so it's probably apropos. <laughs> hey, the Brits are always cast in the villainous roles. <laughs> I don't think we sound smarter, we sound meaner. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, well, as our listeners know, we always start the, we want to get to know the guest a little bit. So, you know, take us back into your early days as far as you'd like to go and tell us a little bit about your background and, and kind of why you, why you do what you do and, and what formed who you are today. Give us a little bit of that back, that origin story, as I like to call it. Okay. Well, I'll give that a go. So I am the eldest of 10 children. Uh, six of them came from one father and four from another, but the same mother. When I was five, there were five of us. And by the time I was eight, there were six of us and so on. The family kept growing. Uh, I became uh, a very uh, independent child from a very early age and also helped to look after my siblings. It wasn't an easy time, I don't think for any of us. Uh, There was quite a lot of unpredictable uncertainty in our world for quite a few years. And at the age of 10, I then went to live with my grandparents who raised me from that age. And then I went off to boarding school uh, and I was immersed into uh, a very international environment. I have to say too, that I was born in Trinidad. Uh, My parents weren't English, uh, but then I moved to the UK at a very early age. So I had quite an unusual start in life. Lots of siblings, an environment that that kept changing as a child. And that can create quite a lot of instability in so many respects because you don't quite know what to lean on or what to trust in your world. But what I did realize was that I had to develop my own resources, my own strength uh, to try and get through whatever life threw at me. And so I took this 
through my school years into university. Um, and also, I think what has kept me going throughout my entire life is the ability to find fun, to, to find joy and laughter, and to really love what I do. So that's been my big motivation, is to find a job I really love, to find work that excites me and makes me passionate, that gives me a lot of the answers that, that I would have loved to have known uh, as a younger self, uh, but also um, as, a, as a child who grew up caring for, for my own siblings, uh, my big motivation is to try and reach out to other people to give them something that will help them in their life as well. So that's where I think a lot of this work can really help people is that we can give people something that gives them answers, that reduces uncertainty, that reassures them. And, and is sometimes just sometimes a, a note of a kindness to help them through. Oh, that's great. And, you know, it's <laughs> never more applicable than in the environment we're in today, right? Because I we talk a lot uh, around brain trust here about the idea that we coined the phrase that our brain is default setting is self-preservation. We call it self-preservation orientation. And, and the biology of the brain, which I know you've done a ton of research on, you're passionate about, uh, when it's faced with uncertainty and the, the size of uncertainty can really have a dramatic impact on how it responds, right? So uh, we're going to dive into some of this, the areas of the brain, the biology, the, the, the physiology, and a little bit of the psychology. But from your perspective, just generally speaking, how do you think it, the pandemic, uh, the global pandemic has impacted our neuroplasticity relative to self-preservation? So g give me a little, give me your thoughts on how do you think people have how has this really impacted behavior? Well, that's a, such a huge question. Um, well, the first thing to remember is that um, the brain the brain is very good at adapting to anything for better or worse. So you know it doesn't take a long time for it to uh, it to rewire itself around the inputs it's receiving. So neuroplasticity can work for us, but it can also work against us. So whatever it gets, the brain has to deal with. But, but change and adaptation are central to our survival as a species. If we weren't able to change, we wouldn't have survived as long as we have done. So we do have the ability to do it. But do we like it? And this is the big thing. We don't really like anything that takes us off the path of least resistance. So when it comes to changing something we've become good at or responding to a changed world, it is quite difficult for a brain that needs change but doesn't necessarily love and embrace change. So what we need and what we work, want are two entirely different things sometimes. So the, the pandemic, what, where has it left us? Well, there are a number of answers to that question, Jeff. And if we look at, first of all, the uncertainty that we're in, and you know, you talk about, you've talked about this already, but uncertainty is horrible for a brain that's essentially a prediction machine. The brain sits inside our head, and so it's shrouded in darkness, and it has to rely on data that enters through our sensory organs. So it has to be able to predict how we have to respond to the sensory data. So it likes to know what it's getting and it likes to be able to make the right predictions. And uncertainty means that it can't know what to predict. 
So it starts to suffer a little bit and it, it feels uneasy. And that is why uh, a lot of big reason why uncertainty puts us into a bit of a stress response, because if the brain can't predict, predict what's going on, then it says, we're in trouble here. I better now protect you by firing off a system that's designed to uh, keep you alive. And, and so that's the first thing. Second thing is we hate being told what to do uh, as, as a species. All of us, you know, we really hate being told what to do because we like to be in control of our own lives. And when other people are imposing what they want for us, we feel a little bit out of control. So imposing things like quarantine or social distancing or restrictions of any kind to our freedom um, is, is not easy for us to cope with. So we respond to that emotionally, our emotions heighten, uh, we become more frightened, more angry, and anger gives us the confidence to then fight against it. So emotions have heightened as a result of the pandemic, but probably one of the biggest changes, and this is something that I think should be of huge concern to all of us, is that in a world with a limited touch, uh, where we can't bond and we can't create the chemicals that we need to be able to trust because trust and touch go hand in hand. And you've probably heard of oxytocin, which is the chemical that's released to help us connect and to help us uh, trust each other. We need to, to release that really through touch. If we can't release that and we can't connect with people as much as we would like to be able to, then scientists are predicting that our ability to empathize, to connect, to trust, to bond with each other may slowly start to degrade. So we could emerge from this pandemic with a much um, more reduced, with a, a very reduced ability to, to really uh, build relationships in the way that we could have done had we not had the pandemic. So I hope I've answered that question. Well, you did. And you know, thanks for that big bucket of cold water. Now we're all going to come out of the pandemic. And no one's going to like each other. No one's going to want to have <laughs> No, it's, it's so important. I totally agree with you. And one of the things I want to ask you about as a follow-up to that is when, when the human brain stays in that heightened sense of, of risk or unpredictability, we know that, you know, adrenaline, cortisol, a lot of these, you know, neurotransmitters, neurohormone. I just throw it all into the bucket of neurochemistry. All of these stay heightened. What happens to the brain when it stays in that state uh, longer than is, is really necessary and or useful? What happens to us? So the, the stress response, so we have two stress responses, but the one that we always talk about is the sympathetic nervous system. And this is our fight or flight response. And it's called sympathetic because it's sympathetic to the environment. So it responds in accordance to either a hostile environment or an uncertain environment, or even if we imagine something is stressful, this response activates. So what happens? Well, the, uh, there's a lot going on. The temporal lobe is here. There's a lot going on in here. But the amygdala, now the amygdala is, uh, gets a lot of traction in, uh, in business at the moment. And we talk about the amygdala hijack and we talk about fear. The amygdala's job isn't fearfulness or to alert us to a fear response. The amygdala's job is to signal that something unusual is happening. So this puts us on high alert. So the amygdala says, oh, there's something that's not quite right or not quite predictable going on around me. It then signals, sends a signal to the hypothalamus, which is the start of our endocrine response, our master gland. This fires off a set of hormones down to our adrenal glands, the cortisol and adrenaline are then released. 
And at the same time, noradrenaline, which is a neurotransmitter, uh, it spreads across the brain. And this puts us on super high alertness. So the, one of the first signs of noradrenaline flooding the brain is the pupils dilate. Now, the pupils also dilate when we're in love, when we're attracted, when we're interested in something. So it's a sign that we, we're, we're alert to what's going on. Now, the impact of adrenaline and cortisol it um, varies. So adrenaline uh, adrenaline is, is designed to help us um, get the energy. And it, it, at the same time, glucose is released. Cortisol helps release glucose into the bloodstream to give us the energy to run or fight. So adrenaline and cortisol, this whole system is designed to fire off uh, in a short-term way. This is called acute stress. We're designed for short-term stress. We're not designed to be firing this system over and over and over again. And if we do fire it uh, over and over again, the chemicals that are there to protect us could slowly start to poison us. And so what happens is cortisol, so if you imagine hydrocortisone cream is an anti-inflammatory, cortisol kind of works in the same way. It's designed to stop the immune system firing too much. It's designed to give us just enough, uh, but not too much of anything. But if cortisol is always present, it has a dampening effect, an anti-effect on a lot of our other systems. So our immune system then becomes impaired, blood sugar goes up, our whole system gets out of whack, gets out of balance. And we start to suffer the effect, cognitive effects of stress, memory loss, the hippocampus, which also sits in the, uh, in the temporal lobe next to the amygdala, this starts to shrink. And, you know, this doesn't take long to happen. And over time, you know, if we're exposing ourselves to chronic stress over and over and over again, the damage we do can be irreversible. We put ourselves at risk of dementia and degenerative cognitive decline. So we have to be super careful about this. Now, the good news is, I don't want to be a voice of doom and gloom, but the good news is that physical cardiovascular exercise works like miracle grow on this same structure. So the hippocampus sits, it's named after a seahorse, the Greek word for seahorse, and at the end of it is the amygdala. And the hippocampus this region we can grow through really working the brain. So the synaptic connections we can grow all the time, but we can grow new neurons here. And we do this by physical cardiovascular exercise and really stretching our cognitive brain to help store information and, and memory tests and that kind of thing. But physical cardiovascular exercise has got to be done to keep the um, hippocampus healthy. So movement and memory go hand in hand. So we need to move to protect the brain against stress. It's one of the best things we can do. Yeah, that's great. And I think um, in your book, Why We Do What We Do, and I know that you cover a lot of this stuff in your book and and many of the principles, just for those who are listening, you know, I encourage you to go pick up the book. We'll give you a, a link later. But this is all part and parcel to your passion for taking these kind of, I call them nerdy, nerdy neuroscience concepts, right? And applying them to everyday life because you know, so many people have been sitting confined to their four walls for a year now, and they don't even recognize that their relationships are suffering even inside their home, let alone outside their home, because in many cases, their the unpredictability of their lives is causing this effect 
on the parasympathetic system and all of these things are, are happening. And there, there, are, there are ways to get around this exercise. You know, yes, you can, you can have relationships on Zoom. It's not quite the same. You know, get outside, walk around a little bit, right? You're not, you're not completely confined to your four walls and doing things that help. You know, one of the things you mentioned, we're going to talk about memory here in a second. Um, and I believe it was in your home city. I love the study where they did the taxi cab drivers. And she mentioned the hippocampus and they did a study with taxi cab drivers in London where they were actually able to grow their hippocampus. Tell us about how they did that. that was, yeah, there was a study done by University College London. It's one of the colleges of London University. And they studied, so black cab drivers in London have got to memorize and commit to memory all of London's intricate routes, uh, roads, alleyways, muses, and then the landmarks, the buildings, and they have to commit this to memory. And you see them uh, driving around London on these little scooters uh, with these maps, and then it's called the knowledge, and it takes years. It takes years to do, and they have to go up against an examination board, and they're tested on their knowledge of the knowledge. And so University College London wanted to look to see, was this having an impact on the brain's um, hippocampal region so the region where we store now memory works in very interesting ways in the brain but this region the hippocampus stores personal memory episodic memory things that happen to us memory we store that's relevant and personal to us so this is the the region that they were looking at and it, this is the it's been a fascination this region has been a fascination to many scientists over the years so over five years they kept looking at the uh, hippocampal regions of these black cab drivers. Um, and over a five year longitudinal study, they found that the hippocampus just continued to grow. So that was over five years, but rodent studies have shown, if you put rats on a treadmill and you scan the hippocampus, it just takes 28 days for the hippocampal region to grow. So, you know, it's a, we can do both cognitive exercises, but physical exercise is also critically important. We can't really do one without the other. And if we're going to choose, I'd go to the physical. But yes, the black cab drivers. And you get into a black cab now in London and they're so proud of their hippocampus because, you know, everybody became very aware of this study. But it was a great thing to have done because it shows how adaptable, how plastic the brain really is. So I have a, a thought, you know, I have, I have a study idea for you, Helena. You should take a, a longitudinal study now and go, go to the, the, the black cab company in London and, and say you want to evaluate all of the cab drivers who were in that study to see how many of them actually developed dementia because I bet it's lower yes. than, the, than yes. the average population yes. because that's the area yeah. of the brain where I think it's affected so much by that. So No, it's very interesting, Jeff, but actually when they, they actually scanned the scan black cab drivers when they stopped being black cab drivers and they shrunk again. The hippocampus shrunk again. So this is what I mean. You know, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. The brain is plastic in, in every way. So if you don't, you continue to exercise this area and keep your synaptic growth healthy, then the synapses just fall away. So wow. doing one thing, I always say to people, do one thing new every day. And every time you do something new, a new synapse grows. And you can continue to grow your brain until the day you die. But doing something new every day is fantastic. So, so this is a perfect segue because uh, I, you know, I've been studying this area a lot. And I love your your perspective on it. I think you know, the brain, for those who aren't don't love this stuff, you know, we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90 you know, billion neurons in the brain. And none of them touch each other. They're all actually connected through the ability to do neurotransmission. Now, this is what I wanted to ask you about. So 
when it comes to change and change resistance, so way back in the 30s and 40s, I think it's called, you know, we call it Hebb's Law. Dr. Hebb had studied this idea of how a neuron fires and activates another neuron, and then you go through the axon, and it creates this new neural pathway and all this fun stuff that leads to a habit. Yeah. And and so these these behaviors, uh, we we do, we create them, right? In our, in our, our, our own brains create habits, they create behaviors by repetitive either thinking thoughts, feelings, emotions, or activities or experiences. And and why is it then that so many of us uh, don't realize that subconsciously our neural pathways that we ourselves have created aren't serving us well? <laughs> they're actually, they're, they're actually have, right? Because you said earlier, water will follow the path of least yes. resistance. So will our thoughts. Yes. So habits are the way, brain's way of conserving energy. So that's the first thing we have to recognize. Now, we don't have the brain power to consciously attend to everything that happens to us. So the brain has this marvelous way of pushing things below the level of consciousness. So habitual behavior is what's called automaticity. And by re constant repetition and practice, uh, we, we, be, we make these processes, this knowledge. Think about driving, for example, if you've driven for years. We don't have to think about it anymore. It's become a cognitive automatic process in the brain. So where does this sit? And this is what's really fascinating is that it sits in a region called the, bra the brain called the basal ganglia. And this is a, 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 a set of structures and the striatum is the biggest structure within the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is there to help store these cognitive automatic processes. So we can damage the hippocampus, we can lose the hippocampus. And this is what they found with people that have suffered from amnesia, severe amnesia or herpes encephalitis, which can wipe out uh, the hippocampal region. Or if you ha even have the hippocampus removed, which was uh, which happened in the most studied man in neuroscience, Henry Mollison, who had severe epilepsy, he had to have his hippocampal uh, regions removed on both sides, both temporal lobes. Um, so he wasn't able to form new memories there. But the basal ganglia keeps us able to function because it's stored this repetitive behavior, this, these habitual behaviors. So we know we can get up in the morning, we can clean our teeth or brush our hair and get dressed. So that structure is left intact. The big problem, though, with anything um, cognitively automatic is that we stop, we stop checking on it. We stop thinking about it because it's there. It's there to help us feel efficient and to make things feel easy for us and to conserve energy. The brain has to conserve energy. It's naturally extremely lazy. So given the choice, it will tell us to lie down a lot because... We historically, we didn't know when we were going to get our next meal. And this is the brain we still have. It has learned to conserve energy so and to make some of these processes automatic. And trying to rewire some, the brain and to stop us to change something that's become automatic needs a lot of patience, a lot of practice. Um, and we need to push through failure. We need to push through frustration. Uh, and, you know, this isn't easy. If we're used to be feeling expert at something, we're not going to want to feel bad at something by learning something new or changing something we're good at. But in order to do that, we have to, you know, we do need to rewire the brain. And this does take time. So every time we do something new, we create a new synapse. But practice and repetition 
strengthens strengthens this same synapse. And over time, this then gets stored um, as, a, as an automatic process. So changing it, we need to raise it to the conscious level, and then we need to work through feeling not great at it until we start to feel that it's becoming a cognitive automatic process in its own right again. And a lot of people don't like that feeling, and that's why we revert back to the familiar the paths, of least, uh, the paths of least resistance, you know, well-trodden paths, the familiar, uh, because they feel safe and they feel easy and they feel efficient. That's so good. And I, I, I love this concept. We could probably do a whole episode just on this concept, right? Because you and I are in the business of behavioral change and helping people maximize their impact. And yet we find time and time again, the things that really hold them back are that they've created these habitual pathways in their brain that actually aren't serving them well, but their brain continues to do them because it feels like it's less risky. It feels safer. It feels easier. It feels more efficient. So I want you to think the audience listening, I want you to think of something that you do habitually. Maybe it's a Maybe it's a bad, probably easier, according to Daniel Kahneman, it'll be easier to think of a bad habit than a good habit. But think of a think of a, a, a habit you have that maybe you shouldn't have, whether it's smoking, maybe it's drinking, maybe it's you don't exercise, whatever the habit is. Your brain has convinced you that that habit is efficient. So you do it because you feel safe. And anything other than that habit, your brain is going to tell you that it's risky. And it's unfamiliar, so therefore it's probably not going to end well for you. I heard an analogy once, and I love your, your response to this, that you think about these synaptic pathways, it's kind of like grooves on a mountain where rain has run down a groove on a mountain over and over and over again to the point where it's created a, a chasm. So it's much easier for the water to run down that pathway. Well, to create a new path for the water takes, to your point, a lot of time, a lot of patience, and you have to redirect that water in a whole new way, which our brains are really not built for, right? They're built for that familiarity. So when you coach people or you're working with companies um, or just individuals and you're trying to get them to recognize how critical it is, we work with a lot of salespeople, a lot of leaders and coaches, and we ask them to communicate differently by teaching them how the brain actually works. But they've been communicating the way they've been communicating their whole lives. So therefore they have a habitual pathway in communicating the wrong way. <laughs> right? They communicate too much with the analytical network of the brain, you know, system two, and not nearly enough with system one, all that kind of fun stuff, right? The, the emotional empathic network. How, how do you get someone to recognize, it's easy to say, well, you got to bring it to your conscious, but how do you get them to really recognize not only that they have uh, the wrong pathway created, but then how do they, how do you get them convinced to try to do a new pathway, to create a new pathway? I mean, that, that's just, it's just such a difficult thing to do. I mean, you know, the, the, the Scottish poet Robbie Burns said, oh, to have the gift of gears, to see ourselves as others see us. And I think the best thing we can do for ourselves is to find people we trust and respect and ask them to see what we can't see. Because it's very hard for us to see ourselves through somebody else's lens. We have a view of ourselves. And remember the brain's designed to protect, to protect ourselves. It's designed to avoid death, uh, not embrace life. It's risk averse. It, it forms a very protective role. So it protects all our, you know, all our thoughts, our values, our beliefs. Even if they're wrong, we will justify the wrong stuff because we can't bear the thought that we can't, that we might be doing something wrong, or we can't bear the thought that we this view of ourselves could be negative. So we, we justify and we protect. So the only way we can really open our eyes to see ourselves differently is to find somebody 
we we trust, someone we admire, uh, someone we aspire to, and then ask them uh, to give us, and I hate to use the word feedback because feedback is, I would say feedback carries the nocebo effect of the brain. It's a, It stimulates the pain matrix. And, you know, we never feel great if someone says to us, can I give you some feedback? Totally, totally. Frightening phrase we can hear at work. But just to get, get people to give us some insights into what we can do differently, how to improve what we do. Um, you know, we have to get used to feeling um, not failure, not not in the sense of failure, but we have to get used to, to feeling that, that we are learning, that, that nothing is uh, is finished, nothing is perfect, we're not perfect, that we're all uh, we're all works of art in progress. And we will be like this until we die. And as soon as we view ourselves as learners, everybody then becomes a teacher. So we have to constantly try and recalibrate, readjust, improve, reassess. And as soon as we can get into that headspace and mindset, uh, we don't feel quite, we, we don't protect ourselves in quite the same way. We open ourselves up to new opportunities, new ideas, new insights. Well, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but you touched on something there that I think uh, that a lot of our listeners who are, are leaders and managers will appreciate. I just uh, told this to a client of ours the other day. I said, you know, don't, don't ever ask someone if they want feedback. <laughs> Because, you know, once you've taught someone how the brain works, and then I tell you, would you like some feedback? Your brain will automatically go into survival mode. It'll send up a red flag. And the feedback means that, would you like me to tell you why you're so bad at something? That's what you're actually asking, right? So this brings me to my next topic I want to talk to you about. The, the words that we choose, the phrases that we use, um, how we how we ask questions, all these things are, are, are impacted and received different, differently in the brain. So if I were to say, instead of saying, are you open to some feedback? If I were to say, hey, w- would, you, would you be interested in a couple of ideas I have that might help you be even more impactful than you already are? Would that be received differently than are you open to some feedback? Yes, and I think the timing is critical. So the time to tell somebody to, to give to give people ideas to help them is just before they need the ideas. The time not to do it is just after they've done something. Mm. Because if you give people this information immediately afterwards, they can't do anything with it. And it feels like they could have done better. They take it as a bit of a criticism. And the brain is very negatively biased, very negatively biased. We're designed that way. We see the threatening before we see the safe. We see we we are much more finely attuned to hear bad news over good news. So if I said to you, I've got good news and bad news, what do you want first, Jeff? Chances are you'll say, give me the bad news, then give me the good news. So we hook to bad news. We've got this morbid fascination with bad news, particularly about other people. So we hook to the bad news. And so if you give anyone any information that even has the merest suggestion of negativity, the brain will hold it, the brain will find it, it sticks like a glue in the brain. So if you have ideas to help them, you time it. You give them those ideas just before they need the ideas so that they can implement them, they can put into practice. They don't have time to worry about criticism, they're doing something with it. So timing becomes critical and yes, language is critical as well. Oh, that's so good. Uh, you know, this really kind of just uh, an idea popped in my head. That, that I hate the word feedback. And I always said there's a big difference between input and feedback. And it's kind of what you're saying is feedback is derived 
it's from our practices of, of how we've done things forever. But if I give you feedback after the episode, it's going to always be <clears throat> perceived as that I did something wrong and it was a negative. But if I can give you input just before you do something, you look at it as more coaching and no one has ever said they've, they've, they've hated being micro coached. It's always being micromanaged, right? So the idea of input ideas, inputting right before I can use them I love that. I don't know that I've heard anyone articulate that. So all of my coaches out there listening to this, now what does that require? It requires you biting your tongue in the moment, right? And, and writing down some things. How it, I'll just let you, you, you coach us on how to do this the right way. No, you're absolutely right. We have to bite our tongue because as, you know, lead, you know and I, I've had to manage people as well. And we're so, I don't know where it comes from, whether it's always from a necessarily good place or whether we think we should because we're leading this person. But there is always this desire to tell somebody, to give people feedback, if you like, feedback immediately after an event. And you're right, we have to bite our tongue because it's not helpful. What we can do immediately after the event, though, is focus on something that is positive, that you really liked, because that then nails it in. You know, you... You, 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 you get that behavior again. People then feel really good about what they've just done. So you focus, and this has to be specific. You can't just say, good job. You know, that's not enough. You, could just, you, you need to be very specific about what you particularly like. So I might say to you, Jeff, I particularly like the way you asked me the question on language. And I particularly like the way you picked up on this afterwards. So the more specific we can be, the more likely we are to get that repeat behavior of the positive, the good stuff again. And that's all we say at that point. And then we wait until the next time that they need the next bit of input. So we shouldn't deal with outputs um, if it's going to be the only output we deal with is a good one. When it comes to the next event, you then find a way to tell people or to advise people or to guide people to have to do things slightly differently and it shouldn't be too different it should be different enough to make a difference a perceptible discernible difference but not so much that they think that what they did before was utterly wrong so it's a way of tweaking and adjusting and fine-tuning all the time and this is guaranteed and I put this into practice um, with my people when I was leading them uh, but also I've used it with my stepchildren and it really does work a treat because, you know, our job is to look after other people's brains. You know, we have the ability to affect neurotransmission in other people's brains and we have this power that we shouldn't uh, abuse. And so we, we, can, we can build up someone's brain beautifully, but equally we can crush it. So we do need to think of the responsibility how as social animals with each other, social social creatures, we have this ability to affect the brain power of the people around us. Oh, that's so good. And I think what I what I'm taking away from this is is if you have the instinct to give feedback right after an episode, whether you're a parent, a, a little league coach, or a manager, a leader in in a business, that's probably more about you than it is about them. But if you have the ability to give them input prior to something that's going to, that's going to be about them and less about you. And wow, yes, you just challenged me as a leader. And I bet you that that concept just challenged a heck of a lot of people listening to this, those who are responsible. Because right, our instinct is, well, if I don't give them feedback, how am I going to make them better? Exactly. And that's the wrong approach. Exactly. It really does. And it has a very demotivating and 
disempowering effect on people. It, it you know, the, the energy just becomes flat. You can see it almost immediately. So, but when you when you get take somebody from A to B to C to D in small baby steps through little, you know, ways of coaching and guiding, then it's far more powerful. And our job is to grow people. It's not to it's not to destroy them. You know, we need to help people and not hold them back. And I think most people out there have the same desire to do that. They're in some type of a coaching or leadership position. Problem is, is they don't realize that what they're doing is can be destructive, right? Because they don't understand how the brain works. Exactly. And that's why we exist. That's why you and I exist in this world, Elena. Well, um, and we're getting close to time here, but I did want to touch on one other topic. You know, you talk in your book a lot around the idea of, you know, visualization and storytelling and how that works so well with the brain when it comes to not only understanding and comprehension, but influence and, and impact. You know, why, why does that work so well as a form of communication? Storytelling has, uh, well, there, it's really interesting, but as a, as a species, we are not susceptible to statistics. We are not good at dealing with data. Uh, we are very good, though, at listening to stories. And so, you know, storytelling has is an ancient art form, and it's been our most powerful and effective way of communicating since we were running around as cavemen. So the ability to tell stories, well, first of all, when we can identify with a character in a story, uh, we can, you know, we start to bond. So it releases all kinds of different chemicals. A powerful story can make us, um, you know, really identify with the hero or heroine. And this is an oxytocin effect. It can make us excited. This is the effect of adrenaline. We want to hear more. We can't wait. We have bated breath. This is the impact of dopamine, which is always released in anticipation of something. And this is the cliffhanger. This is the effect of dopamine. And of course, we love a happy ending. And this is serotonin. So, you know, when I ask people to describe stories they don't like. It's always very, very often they say to me, the story's without a happy ending or without an ending because we need closure. So we need to be taken on this sort of neurochemical journey. Uh, and we, when we hear someone else tell a story, this is a remarkable thing. Our brain activates as if we ourselves were telling that story. We can almost project ourselves into the story we're hearing. So it's an amazing effect on the brain. So statistics that we should, you know, when we think, well, we, you know, we should be rational creatures. We've grown a frontal lobe that's so important to us that the skull is pushed out to be able to accommodate it. We should be rational creatures or we should be using more of our rational brain than we are. But we don't. We are not rational at all. We're susceptible to stories over statistics. And we can only have to look at what's happening in Europe with the AstraZeneca vaccine. People aren't looking at the data at all. They're just looking at stories. And so, and this has happened uh, many, many times uh, with the measles, mumps and rubella vaccination and the link with autism, which was found to be spurious. You know, we are so susceptible to, to our own uh, feelings and to the stories, our own experiences that we stop to look at the data and the statistics. But because of that, stories, we should be using stories much more because they're the best way to convey any information. And isn't it great how we know that because we make so, so many of our decisions emotionally and then we look to validate and justify with statistics, stories allow us to connect emotionally and really drop in the information we want 
to be garnered from the story. And then it almost allows the listener to start to recruit and look for reasons to justify why they like you or why they believe the story or why they, and that's where we don't have time today, but that's where all the cognitive biases come in into your favor versus against it, right? The other thing I love about this is what you were saying earlier is stories allow, if our brain, as you said earlier, is a predictive machine and stories cause us naturally to want to keep predicting what's going to happen next. So our attention is held. Yes, exactly. And that's why great communicators are able to do that with, with narratives much easier, right? Yes. And the so, language so, pathways, sorry, Jim, the language please. pathways in the brain is, you know, that's just one area. So statistics and facts activate the language pathways. We interpret, we listen. But a good story activates so much more of the brain. So the whole brain is is put on this incredible, you know, is, is activated and lit up with a good story. So, you know, and, and the words we use, if we can use words that appeal to the senses, then our different sensory regions get activated. And if we can imagine and visualize uh, what's going to happen next, then another part of the brain gets activated. And so, you know, the whole brain is given a lovely workout through a good story. Love it. That's great. Well, um, we're coming up on time. So tell us a little bit, tell the audience how they can learn more about you, how they can be in touch with you, how they can get your book. Um, how, how can we connect with you? Well, I'm um, at the moment, I'm having my website uh, designed uh, professionally. I've, I've managed to exist from all this time without a website. Uh, without, and, and it's uh, something that I've had to look at because now we've entered a digital era. Uh, but also, and that my my company in the UK is called Checkered Leopard. But I am I am contactable on LinkedIn, uh, and so you know if anyone wants to contact me there, that's where I am. Uh, but also, um, I also work through a speaker agency called Leading Authorities, and Leading Authorities uh, are great, and they also have an amazing set of speakers as well. So um, lots of ways. If you Google me, I normally pop up somehow. Good. And so what, your book, Why We Do What We Do, is that available on Amazon and other online retailers? I, I believe it is, correct? Yes, it's available. Now, it's a second edition, and uh, it came out just as COVID was erupting around the world. And I was having to delay publication as I as I could see what was happening. Uh, I was having to add in little bits of data, little bits of details around how headlines manipulate us, how our biases are being affected even more. But if I was to write that book again, I'd probably have a lot more content now. But yes, it's available on Amazon and it's 12 chapters on the brain and it's written for non-scientists. But but if you are, you do have a scientific bent or inclination, at the end of every chapter, there are the references linked to what I'm talking about in the context of the book. And it's laid out in a way that hopefully will be easy for, for you to navigate through and understand well. Yeah, it's very well written. And uh, to, to those listening, if you've liked anything we've put out, you'll love this book. Uh, it's right, it'll be right in your wheelhouse. And uh, please, you know, Google Dr. Helena Bosky and um, look her up, follow her, because she is certainly making a big impact on the world. It has made an impact on us, and we love what she's doing, the work she's doing. And thanks again for being our guest on the Driving Change podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a real honor and a privilege. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And you. Take care. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. 
I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.